Let's just bow together right wherever you are, whatever, whoever you're with this morning. And with the, the words of that great song just sort of lingering in your mind, I invite you also to listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 6, where the author says that in the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of his promise, his unchangeable purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hope of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus Christ has entered as a forerunner for us. Father, I thank you that in your word you give us so many pictures, so many images of of, of who and, and all that you are to us. We, we see imagery of a rock and a fortress and a shield and a shelter. And Father, here in Hebrews, you talk about Jesus being like a, an anchor, a hope we can take hold of, an anchor for our soul. Father, uh, we praise you for that picture this morning. We may not be familiar, many of us, with what it's like to be at sea, the, the, the power and the significance of an anchor, Father, but we can imagine. An anchor holds the ship fast in the midst of a storm. It can, it can keep it in place. It can, can keep those aboard secure and safe. And Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have much more than an anchor. We have a Savior and a Lord and a Redeemer, a Protector, and a Friend. And Father, wherever we are this morning, as we are separated, and it is so hard, once again, Lord, to be separated from one another, not able to worship side by side as sisters and brothers in Christ. Father, I pray that wherever we are this morning, as it were, we would take hold of that anchor for the soul. We would take hold of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Though things today are not the way we want them to be, you are nonetheless in charge and in control. You are a great God. You are a mighty God. You are the sovereign, strong, supreme God. And at the same time, you love us very, very much. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today as so many of us are feeling disconnected. Father, as, as there's so much that we can worry about and can be concerned about. And Father, there is, Scott used the word earlier, even disappointment in our lives right now. Father, those things your word tells us are going to come, but we know at the same time that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, it's not just to our screens, and it's not just to our church, and it's not just to a sermon that we look this morning, but, Father, through all those things, our aim, our desire is to look to Jesus. Father, that we would, as, as another song we sometimes sing, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we would look full in his wonderful face, and that in doing so, the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Fathers, we go to your word now. We want you. We want Jesus himself to be our teacher. Fathers, we open the scriptures. We pray for the help of the Holy Spirit that, that in these moments together, even though apart, that he would in each place, in each room, in each place where we have gathered together, that he would be the one to guide us in truth, that he would be the one to guard us from misunderstanding, that he would deliver us from, from apathy and indifference. Father, and maybe more than anything this morning, just from the powers of distraction, so that in these precious few moments together, Lord, we might see Jesus. Father, I pray we'll see Jesus clearly this morning as we study your word. I pray that we will see Jesus only this morning as we study your word. And Father, then when we turn off our screens and go back to our day and, and into this week of thanksgiving ahead of us, Father, that we will do it rejoicing. 
For even though we don't have all we want in this life, we have Jesus, and he is enough. It is him we love, it is him we seek, and it is in his name that we pray, as all God's people said together, wherever they are, amen and amen. Well, good morning again. Just add my word of welcome, my word of greeting uh, to all of you who are watching us from uh, wherever you are watching us, and uh, it is different. We did this a while ago. We did this for many weeks, but it is no less strange this time around than it was last time to be in a virtually empty sanctuary. And I know, just having watched from home with my family last week, that it is not an easy thing. I was reminded to uh, worship in that context the, the way we'd like to if we were together. Uh, but we're going to do our best, and we're going to trust that this is God's plan. And, and, and as we do that, I just, uh, just a couple things I'll mention. For one, I just want to, as they exit the stage, I want to say just a huge word of thanks and gratitude to the worship team uh, for sacrificing the opportunity to worship with their family at home today and coming to lead us and to lead us uh, so well and also provide me with a few people to look at while I'm preaching this morning. Hopefully a few smiling faces uh, coming back my way, but I am so grateful, as I'm sure you are as well, for their leadership of us, truly leading us in, in worship um, this morning. And I just want to continue to encourage you. I sent a little video message out uh, earlier this week, and I just really want to reiterate uh, that as, as much as I can that it really is incumbent on all of us to stay connected. The elders, we're going to meet again this week, and I know one of the things we're going to talk about is how, do, you know, how much longer are we going to have to do this, and how are we going to stay connected. But as I said in that message I sent, connectedness, it really is incumbent on all of us. So again, I just want to say, if God puts a fellow brother or sister on your mind, if their name comes to mind, or you think of them for some reason, just take the initiative. Give them a call. Send them a text. Let them know that you are there and, and in some way, we can keep a network of connectedness, uh, just sustain it until we're able to be together again. And I also really want to encourage you just, just to, to uh, stress what Scott said earlier uh, about this, uh, the sort of this video uh, conglomeration of, of, of praise and thanksgiving to make a little video. Uh, let us see your face. Let us hear your voice. And uh, in that way, too, we can not only give praise to God, but stay connected together. With that said, the way we're going to connect right now is by going to the Scriptures and studying God's words. If you have a Bible nearby, I encourage you to put your hands on it and open it up and meet me in Acts chapter 9. I want you to find your way to Acts chapter 9, and as you're turning there, and as I begin reading our passage here in just a moment, um, some of you may begin to think as I read, hey, this sounds kind of familiar. Uh, I feel like I've heard this story somewhere before and not all that long ago. And, and if you feel that way as I begin reading this story, I just want you to give yourself a gold star wherever you are. Uh, give yourself a smiley face emoji, whatever it is you need to do to feel good because it means you're paying attention or at least that you remember that we were in fact in this story, the same story, Acts chapter 9, not all that long ago, uh, in a different context, with a different emphasis, but, but Acts chapter 9 is the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We then come to know him as the Apostle Paul, and, 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 and just back in the late summer, as I said, in another series with another emphasis, we looked at this story, so in some ways it may be familiar to us, I hope it's familiar to us, uh, but even so, we're going to come at it from a different angle as we continue uh, this series of studies in God's Word. Uh, this one, this mini-series called, as you can see on your screen, The Journey. 
uh, in, in, in keeping in concert with our evangelism shift emphasis, learning to live as witnesses, uh, we are going to look at the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to see what we can learn from it about living as witnesses for Jesus Christ today. I'm going to begin reading this morning in Acts 9, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 22, and I invite you to follow along as this is what the Bible says. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. That high priest would have been probably Caiaphas, the same high priest responsible for sending Jesus to the cross, or at least in on that, uh, on that plan. Saul went to him, and verse 2, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing, and leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately... He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You know, few people in church history have a conversion story quite like that of Saul of Tarsus, a blinding light, a voice from heaven, three days of blindness followed by a miraculous recovery. I'm just going out on a limb and guessing when I say that none of us watching, listening in this morning, can probably identify with things quite like that taking place, transpiring on the day and in the moment we trusted Christ. His story is unique. 
But while the events of his conversion, Saul's conversion, which were unlike ours, are unlike ours, his journey to that moment was another thing altogether. And I believe this morning it has much to offer us in terms of learning to live as witnesses of Jesus Christ, of discovering what it means and how it works to, spiritually speaking, meet someone where they are at a certain point in life and help them take the next step toward faith in Christ, which, by way of reminder, because it's been several weeks, is the theme of this current series, this series called The Journey. Because what we're doing over the course of four Sundays, we've done one already, we have this and then a couple more to follow, we are looking at four very unique and very dynamic New Testament faith journeys. Not just the moment where someone trusted Christ, but the journey that led them to the moment of trusting in Christ. And our aim in this series, as we do so, is to see That along the way, from spiritually lost to found, every interaction an unbeliever has with someone who knows Christ matters. That is to say, that the person who initiates the journey, whom God uses to initiate the journey, and the people God uses along the way to help advance someone's journey from spiritually lost to found, they are just as vital. They are just as crucial and important as the one whom God chooses to, as we've been saying, close the deal. All of those interactions are of supreme importance. Now, the context here in Acts chapter 9, as the story opens where we began reading, is is it actually only a couple of years at most have passed since Jesus died and rose from the dead. It hasn't been that long at all. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, who at this time would have been a very young man, he was an up-and-comer in Jewish circles and and, and already perhaps a highly revered Pharisee uh, among the Jewish leadership. Well, he had emerged, Saul of Tarsus had, as the early church's most vocal and violent opponent. As, as doing more harm to followers of Christ in those early days than anyone. In fact, if you look at your Bible again in verse 1, what did it say? It said, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Well, he went to the high priest to get permission to do some more. But what we've already seen through the reading is, is that that was about to change. That that plan, that ambition, that way of life was about to change. And interestingly, as just a testimony to how significant this conversion story is, this is one of three places in the book of Acts where Saul's conversion story is told. Luke relates it to us here. Paul himself, remember Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. Paul himself tells it in in two other places. And there are additional details about his conversion story found in some of his New Testament letters. And we're going to look at several of those things today. But but with that said, what I hope we're going to see by the time we're done, if I do my job in preaching and you do your job in listening, and we all arrive at the station at about the same time, what I hope we're going to see together is this. That while the real work of conversion, of salvation, is something only God can do. Only God can wash away sin. Only God can regenerate a heart. Only God can give the gift of new life. At the same time, what we want to see is that Saul's conversion was no chance occurrence. 
no chance occurrence. And that, in fact, instead, as I'm about to show you for years in advance, God had been strategically placing people in Saul's life at certain moments and for in very different ways, none of whom we're going to see this morning close the deal. None of whom were the person who led him to faith in Christ, but all of whom were used by God to help him move toward it. And so specifically, here's what we're going to do. Here's what I'm going to try to show you in our time together. I want to take a look at three contributors to Saul's conversion. Three specific people told, were told about here in the scriptures, and in some ways they represent a, a host of others, but three contributors to Saul's conversion. And the reason we're going to look at these three people is we want to see what we can learn from them about living as witnesses for Jesus Christ today. Three contributors to Saul's conversion, the first of whom isn't actually mentioned here in Acts chapter 9, but, but the effects of his influence are, are all over the place. The first of whom was a man named Gamaliel. The first contributor to Saul's conversion we're going to look at this morning in the scriptures was a man named Gamaliel, and I would say that his contribution to Saul's conversion was that he gave him the gift of spiritual formation. Gamaliel and the gift of spiritual formation. Now, for just a moment, I want you to jump from the beginning of our reading this morning in Acts 9 to where we concluded. Because what the last couple verses of our passage say is that literally only a matter of days after trusting Christ as Savior, it says in verse 20, Saul immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the Son of God. And people, verse 21 says, were amazed, and they couldn't figure this out. And it says that as he did so, verse 22 says, he kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now that should strike us as highly unusual for a new convert to Christ. The fact that he was immediately standing in a synagogue, commanding an audience, and he who had formerly been the persecutor is now proving in, in, in irrefutable ways who Jesus was and what he had accomplished. And the reason he was so effective, the reason he was so effective so quickly as a witness for Christ, well, I believe it's the same reason he was so opposed to Christ when the chapter began, and that was his training as a Pharisee. The training he had received as a Pharisee. Because if you've read the New Testament much at all, if you've listened to much preaching and teaching from the New Testament, you probably, like me, tend to think of the Pharisees as sort of the New Testament arch-villains, all right? They're the guys in the black hats. They're always rubbing their hands together, cooking up some scheme to, to, to bring the people of God down, to go against Jesus, and, and rightfully so. They did a lot of harm to, to Jesus and to others back in those days, and, and just they had been for, for many years. But at the same time, the fact of the matter is this. They saw themselves, and they were in fact, they had originally set out to be vital defenders of the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament law of the Torah. The Pharisees had originated as, as a group of men, they just come out of Jewish society, who, who saw it as their responsibility to protect the Word of God from corruption, to protect uh, the people of God from heresy and, and false teaching. And, and so they'd added all kinds of rules and, and build all kinds of walls around it. But in their heart of hearts, that's what they thought they were doing. They thought they were the ones to protect the Word of God. Meaning this. That they, 
Saul of Tarsus among them knew the Bible, what we would call the Bible. They knew the scriptures better than anybody else. They'd studied them more closely. They dug into what uh, putting pieces together, understanding doctrine and, and theology. They knew it better than anyone. And again, Saul of Tarsus, he's one of these guys. In fact, when he tells his conversion story in Acts 22, you don't need to turn there, but you may want to make note. In Acts 22, 3, he said this, I'm a Jew. I was born in Tarsus. I was brought up in this city. And I was educated under Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers. He says, I've been trained in the scriptures like nobody else. And, and they could. These guys, they could, they could quote it at the drop of a hat. They, they knew the, the rules and regulations. But here's the thing. To have Gamaliel's badge pinned to your vest, to have Gamaliel, the Gamaliel Academy diploma hanging on your office, well, if you had been trained up in the Scriptures by him, well, in a sense, uh, we would say that made you royalty among Jewish scholars. I mean, he was the best of the best. And if you go to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul tells a little bit more of his testimony, what he says there is he was valedictorian. Like Gamaliel, I mean, that's, that's, that's exclusive. That's best of the best. That's cream of the crop. But he was the best among them. And here's the reason that matters. Because in those days, you didn't just waltz into Gamaliel's lecture hall and sign up for class. And if you could pay the bill, you could... You could get the education. No, as, as one source says in representing many others, the path to, to becoming a Pharisee, a protector and defender, a, a more knowledgeable student of God's law than anyone else almost always began in early childhood. With strict training, this source says, with, quote, immersion as a young boy, five or six years old, in the curriculum of the Jewish scriptures, being taught in synagogue school and at home. And in that you had to excel. And if you excelled, you could advance. And if you excelled there, you could advance further. And it's like a funnel going from this large pool of students. It's getting narrower and narrower till you have the best of the best. They've been educated day and night at home and at synagogue in the truth and the teaching and, 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 and all of God's word. And, and so what I'm trying to say is this. Perhaps the reason Saul of Tarsus was so effective so quickly was all of that spiritual formation he'd received growing up. And he hadn't been taught about Jesus. He didn't know the name of Jesus, but he'd been taught the word of God. He'd been taught the principles and truths of God's word. By an array of anonymous women and men, Gamaliel is the one whose name we know. He's the one whose name people would have recognized. But he had been, from early childhood up until here, he had had people in his life who had been telling him the stories, teaching him the principles, and living out their understanding of God's word before his watchful eyes. And you know what that tells me about living as a witness? It means that our job as moms and dads matters. It means that our job as grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and big brothers and sisters matters. We have the opportunity to exert tremendous, godly, spiritual influence on young people simply by teaching it, sharing it with the next generation. Same goes for Sunday school teachers. Same goes for children's church workers, for nursery caregivers, for student ministry adult 
volunteers. Listen, the stories we're teaching them, the lessons we're offering them, the verses we are rewarding them to memorize and memorize this verse and memorize that verse and learn the books of the Bible and all these things. Listen, who knows what God's going to do with that someday? It looks like they're not paying attention sometimes. They tell you they don't care and that it's boring sometimes. Doesn't mean it's not taking root in their heart. Doesn't mean it's not making a massive difference. Who knows what God might use with that someday? Gamaliel and and Saul's mom and dad and whoever else, they didn't know they were raising the apostle Paul, but God used what they gave him to make him the apostle Paul. And so listen, if you, sometimes witnessing, we don't have to go to the coffee shop. We don't have to go to see our car mechanic or somebody at the store or walk across the street to a neighbor. Now, we should do that. We should bear witness for Christ everywhere, but where does it begin? At home. In Sunday school. In the natural flow of life. And what I'm saying is this. If you occupy any of those roles, and I know some of you occupy many of those roles, you are contributing to someone's journey. Somewhere in there, somebody's journey to saving faith is being advanced. Like Gamaliel, you're giving them the gift of spiritual formation. Don't sell it short. Especially if your mom and dad, it's your number one job. It's your number one mission field right there. How did Saul of Tarsus become the Apostle Paul? Well, it started with people like Gamaliel who contributed the gift of of spiritual formation. That's the first person. The second one, also not mentioned in Acts chapter 9, but in close proximity to it, and clearly had a massive influence on Saul as well. The second person, the second contributor to his spiritual journey, was a man by the name of Stephen. A man, a servant of God, a deacon of the early church by the name of Stephen. And I would suggest to you that Stephen's contribution to Saul's spiritual journey was the gift of bewildering devotion. The gift of bewildering devotion. I'm kind of excited about this point because I know for a fact I've never used the word bewildered in a sermon before. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever used the word bewildered prior to this sermon ever in my life before. But as I thought about it and I searched for synonyms and and I ran it through my mind again and again, I thought this is, that is an ideal description, a, a great expression, bewildered, of how I believe, despite breathing threats and murder, how deep down in his heart Saul of Tarsus felt at certain points on this unfolding spiritual journey that he didn't even know he was on. Because remember again why he was headed to Damascus. Go to verses 1 and 2 again. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he went to the high priest for permission. He's like, I I think I've done as much as I can do in Jerusalem. Uh, My henchmen can take it from here. But Damascus, 135 miles up the road, I've heard there's some church stuff going on there. Could I have permission to go do to them there what I've been doing to the Christians here? He went to Damascus to persecute the believers. And and that was a mission we need to understand just by the language here that he had thrown himself into with the same zeal that he'd shown as a student under Gamaliel to learn God's word. He was a passionate guy. In fact, if you were to look at Galatians 1.13, here's what he says. He says, I used to, back in those days, he says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. Nobody did him more harm than me. 
Nobody locked more people up than me. Nobody signed more death warrants than I did. I persecuted the church beyond measure. Well, where did that start? Well, you go back half a page, maybe a, a full page in your Bible. It goes back to Acts chapter 7 with the martyrdom, the first martyr of the church, a young man by the name of Stephen. And without retelling his whole story, I encourage you to read it if you don't remember it or don't know it. It's a phenomenal testimony and, and, and sermon that he preached. But it says, if you just go to Acts 7, verse 58, it says, having, having preached and been, and been confronted and challenged on it, it says in verse 58 that when they had driven him out of the city, religious leaders, scholars, those opposed to the gospel, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He died and was ushered into the presence of Christ. And, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered all over the place. Some devout men buried Stephen. They made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. And what we're to understand is that from that point... In chapter 8, to where we began reading here in chapter 9, however much time may have passed, a thirst for Christian blood had consumed him ever since. It's what his, his mission in life had become. And, and while I imagine there had to have been exceptions along the way, but I think in large part, and again, this is conjecture, but I think it's good, safe, biblical conjecture, is that what Saul of Tarsus had witnessed from Stephen's death on were believers, among these believers whom he persecuted, men and women who remained faithful unto death. Men and women who would not recant their faith. Men and women, maybe even young people, to whom God gave the grace to persevere to their dying breath and not turn back on Christ. The pain and the suffering they endured was real, but so was their devotion to Christ as he sustained them through it. And I just have to think, in fact, I believe that at some point, at certain junctures, that had to have bewildered Saul of Tarsus, had to confuse him. Uh, listen to his own words in Acts 26. That's the other place his, his conversion story is told. It's told in Acts 22, and it's told in Acts 26. And in Acts 26, 14, as he's telling it for the third and final time, Acts 26, 14, he says, when we all had fallen into the ground, he's talking about this experience on the Damascus road, he says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now here's a line that we didn't have in Acts chapter 9. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What? I mean, what does that mean? Why is that what, what Jesus says to him at this moment? Well, in those days, and you may know this, but a goad was a sharpened stick, a big, long, sturdy stick that had been sharpened to a point, and it was used to goad cattle, oxen, from behind. Keep them moving down the road. It's a cattle, the equivalent of a cattle prod today. Keep them plowing through the, 
through the field to keep them going. They stop, they get distracted. We are going to goad them. What? Cause just enough irritation to get them moving again, to get their attention. And I think what Jesus is saying to Saul there is that the equivalent on his journey, what had been goading Saul? Well, I think it was the faces and the voices of those men and women singing praise to Jesus as he put them in shackles, staying faithful to Jesus as he signed their death warrant, refusing to quit no matter what he did. Again, there may have been exceptions, but by and large, the majority must have stayed faithful. And I can't help but wonder if late at night when he was all alone, in the early morning hours when there was nothing going on, he would think to himself, why won't they quit on this Jesus? I'm doing everything I can think of, and they won't relent. They won't recant. I think that's the sharpened stick prodding his conscience, and he'll kick it away. But he says, it's hard for you to kick in the goads. Why? Because their voices keep coming back. And their faces, the shining face of Stephen as he looks into heaven and says, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing there waiting for me. You think you're going to forget that? <laughs> no, it's going to come back. Again and again, he'd kick away, but they'd return. And listen, what in the world does that have to do with living as witnesses? Well, everything. Because what it reminds us or what it teaches us is that the way we respond to the trials in our lives, the way we deal with the suffering in our lives can speak volumes to the unbelievers that we know. Whether it's a a friend or loved one who doesn't know Jesus, but they watch us cling to him in real time as life falls apart, as something hard happens, or, or after the fact, we get to relate to them the story of how, listen, this is what I went through, this is what happened, and, and you know, well, how'd you get through it? Well, let me tell you how I got through it. I clung to Jesus. I learned that he's enough. In other words, Sometimes our own bewildering devotion to Christ may be the very gift God uses to help a friend or a loved one take the next step. Huh. Maybe there's something to that Jesus thing after all. I think it was a huge contributor to Saul's spiritual journey. Gamaliel and the, and the gift of spiritual formation. Stephen and the, the gift, really, truly gift of bewildering devotion. And then there's one more contributor, one more person, one who does appear here in Acts chapter 9, one that we talked about not long ago, but again, as I said, from sort of another angle. But the third contributor I want us to, to think about this morning is the man named Ananias, the man in Acts 9 by the name of Ananias, whose gift to Saul's, whose contribution to his journey was the gift of undeserved kindness, the gift of undeserved kindness. You know, everybody knows Everybody knows it's possible in life all the time to do the right thing with the wrong attitude, right? And everybody recognizes when that's something someone's doing for you. They did the nice thing. They said please and thank you, but they did not mean it. They did it out of obligation, not out of kindness. 
and love. And, and, and I'd just like to suggest to you, without trying to sound uh, in any way cynical or, or counter to the Scriptures, but I think that's exactly what Ananias could have done here with Saul. He could have done the right thing and yet not at all put his heart in it. Why? Because he didn't ask for this assignment. The Bible doesn't say he had any particular notoriety, any particular uh, responsibility or authority that, that everyone would go, well, of course, Ananias is the guy that, that we should send to, to Saul of Tarsus. Now, maybe he did, but the Bible doesn't say that. It's also quite possible that Saul had already, back in Jerusalem, harmed people that he knew as friends. What I'm saying is this is that in verses 11 and 12, when the Lord said to him, Acts 9, 11 and 12, get up, go to, the, go to Straight Street, inquire at the house of Judas for a man named Sar- Tar- from T- easy for me to say, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision, you come in and lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I'm simply suggesting Ananias could have done exactly that and no more. That's what God told me to do. I'm just being obedient. I don't have to like it, but I'll do it. But what does the rest of the story tell us? It tells us Ananias did do more. It tells us he showed Saul undeserved kindness. Verse 17, so Ananias departed. He entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what Acts 22 tells us, when Paul himself later relates the story, he says he added some additional words. He said, now why do you delay? This is Acts 22, 16. Get up, be baptized, call on his name, have your sins washed away. Here's my question. What if Ananias hadn't done that? If he hadn't done that, what if he'd obeyed God's word but withheld any kindness? Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. God's plan still would have been accomplished. Saul of Tarsus still would have become the Apostle Paul because that was God's plan for him all along. But the path may have been much harder. The span may have lasted much longer. As perhaps Saul of Tarsus saved though he was, went about from one gathering of Christians to another, searching for someone in the church who'd treat him like a brother, who'd show him grace. Am I welcome here? You know, one of the, one of the things we study in Evangelism Shift, and, and if you haven't encountered this in your life-to-life group yet, I'm, I'm pretty sure you will early on, is that that there are certain common steps that most people take on the journey from spiritually lost to found. It doesn't all happen at the same rate, obviously. It doesn't all happen at the same time, at the same pace, or or with the same circumstances, obviously. But there are certain, I don't like putting it this way, but there are certain boxes that get checked in most people's journey as they go from having no contact whatsoever with a Christian, what it means to know Christ, to the, the day when they bow their knee and trust him as Savior. There are certain things that happen. And one of the common factors in most people's journey, and if you think of yours, and particularly if you came to Christ a little later on in life, I bet it was in there somewhere, is this, that that they experience the reality of Christian love and community. They say, oh, that's the difference it makes. They realize 
Not only am I being offered a way out of slavery to sin, I'm being invited into something brand new. A community of fellow redeemed sinners who are far from perfect, (laughs) but they're learning to love each other. They're trying to love each other, not because it's deserved, but because it's what Jesus did for us. Let me ask you a question. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? And, and maybe they don't even like you. But they could use this week a little bit of Christian kindness. A little bit of undeserved kindness. They didn't earn it. In fact, most of what they do, perhaps, <laughs> invites, suggests the very opposite. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? That needs some undeserved kindness? Listen, maybe it won't seem to make any difference at all. Maybe it'll be the very thing that shatters their resistance and moves them toward faith in Christ. Guess what? You won't know if you don't try. But you'll find out (laughs) if you do. What did Ananias contribute to Saul's journey? Very, very important. The gift of undeserved kindness. We call it grace. He showed him grace. Spiritual formation, bewildering devotion, undeserved kindness. So listen, as we we wrap up this morning, basically, here's the bottom line. Three quick things, big idea, and I'm done. What are we supposed to see here? Number one, Saul of Tarsus did not come to faith all at once. We see a snapshot of the moment of conversion. But like each and every one of us, God had been taking him on a uniquely personal journey. It did not happen All at once. Number two, his encounters with these three guys, and again, they represent a host of others. His encounters with Gamaliel, Stephen, and Ananias were not at all by chance. Each one was a divinely orchestrated appointment that did something that helped him advance from oppressor to believer. Not at all a chance. Third, God intends to use you and me the same way. God means to use us today in the same way. Learning to meet people, to recognize where they are and do whatever he shows us we can do to help them take a step toward Jesus. So, why not stop right now? on your couch, in your bed, wherever you are watching right now, and simply say to God, Lord, I'm willing to be used this week. If you want to use me, I'll be available. See, that's scary. It's also thrilling. I'm willing to be used to help an unbelieving friend, family member, stranger, See a little bit of Jesus Christ in you. A little formation, a little endurance, a little kindness. Because today's big idea, it's an invitation. It is a call. The big idea today is to embrace the adventure of living as a witness. I know I need to get the word adventure in my vocabulary as a witness. It's not an obligation 
It doesn't need to be a fearsome thing. It's an adventure. Why? Because you have no idea how the person you're standing in line next to, if or how, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit may already be working in their life. I guarantee you one thing, you won't know if you don't try, but if you try, you might find out. And if we are willing to be used, I'm pretty sure God is going to find some ways to use us. So let's embrace the adventure. Father, starting with me, because I have rarely looked at evangelism, living as a witness, as an adventure. Father, I thank you this morning that your word shows us, Lord, in the lives of these three powerfully influential people in Saul of Tarsus's life. Lord, I guess maybe it's just me, but I am so deeply encouraged and challenged by the fact that none of them walked him down the Romans road. None of them took him through a string of beads or, or, or shared the gospel and prayed. You did that, but, but their part was vitally important that that Saul never would have gotten to the moment of saving faith if those people hadn't been contributing along the way. And Father, my prayer is that, yes, you would give many of us, all of us, opportunities in the time you have given us left on this planet to actually lead and see people experience the moment of trusting Christ. But Father, even when that's not happening, I pray that you will remind us, that you will assure us, that you will show us that there are countless other ways we can be part of the journey. We can be part of the process. Lord, that if we are available, you will show yourself able. And you will do, as your word says elsewhere, immeasurably more than we might ask or imagine. Father, many of us are going to have that opportunity this week. We, though our gatherings may be small and not at all what we want them to be, there's a chance we're going to be around some people who don't know Jesus. Father, help us to be bold and courageous. Make us brave and sensitive and attentive. And Lord, use us. Not somebody else. Use us to contribute to somebody's journey, to offer a gift by our words and actions that will steer someone in the direction of the cross. And then we trust you to handle the rest. Father, as always this morning, we ask that whatever has been spoken this morning of truth will be sealed to our hearts, that all the rest will be left aside, that we might leave looking to Jesus alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.